we are in this months-long, and we're like not even halfway through, uh, studying the life of David. So you're going to find, if you want to read about David's life, what are the primary books you would go to, you guys? First Samuel, it's all about David. What else? Second Samuel, excellent. And then what's probably the third? Psalms. Okay, that's where you're going to get so much material. We've got more information about King David than any other character in the Bible besides Jesus, who is the clear winner of all categories. But David, um, his life, as we watch through it here, what we're, we're, what we're doing Samuel... Beautiful. That was great. Thank you. We're, we're studying Samuel because we're interested in Jesus. And David, I'm sorry, Samuel, the book of Samuel and the, and the person of David because we're interested in Jesus. And David is the prototype of the Messiah in lots and lots and lots of ways. The things that we see David do, the things that we see, the way he lives his life, the patterns, the, um, the impulses that he has are all meant to prepare us as readers for the Messiah who will come. And David is that in two very important ways. He is both the positive example of the Messiah. He is the king of Israel, right? He is the long-suffering, patient one who God exalts from nothingness to total authority. The way that he lives his life is a positive picture of the Messiah. But he is also the negative picture. He is also the opposite. Because David himself cannot fulfill his own promise. So we, we, as we watch through the beginning of this story, we're still, in the, we're still where David is... Almost perfectly all good at this point in the narrative. That's going to change. Okay, so brace yourself for that. But right now we're, we're at the point where David just keeps getting it right over and over and over again. We're going to see where David gets it wrong. Which, which as we get, as we're crushed, disappointed by his just astonishing level of failure. It points us to the one who will never disappoint us who will fulfill those things and overfill all the pictures that David gives, okay? The passage that we're going to look at this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 26. And if the, the simple pattern, if you're dropping in, is we just do a chapter a week. We're just kind of letting those chapter breaks kind of guide our time. And so we're in chapter 26. And to a certain extent, 1 Samuel 26 is really hard to teach. Um, do you know why Samuel 26 is hard to teach? If you glance at it. At least if you're me. If you're me and you love novelty and insight and freshness and differentness, what's hard about 1 Samuel 26? It is so much like chapter 24. It's like everything I had to say that was interesting two weeks ago is like, well, we already covered that, okay? But here's, here's the thing about 1 Samuel 26. Now, the reason that I, I even though I'm a, I'm a sucker for the new and the novel and the interesting and the um, other, uh, what I think the author is doing, what, what Samuel is doing with giving us this incredible redundancy. If you, if you read through 1 Samuel 24 and then you read through 1 Samuel 26, they're entirely different events. There's no mistake that these are the same event being recorded twice. They're totally different in the details, but the pattern is dot for dot. I mean, it is the exact same storyline. And I think it's because, well, you tell me. If you remember 24, what was chapter 24 about? If you flip back, what was going on in chapter 24? They were hiding Hiding in the cave. Saul was hiding in the cave. And what happens? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, David was hiding in the cave. Saul was in the cave. He wasn't exactly hiding, but he was in the cave, right? And, and what could have happened, Stuart? I mean, he could have killed David and then could have killed him, but, but he was more like in retreat. Saul was in pursuit. That's right. Now Saul is vulnerable, but he's sleeping, and now David is, could be. 
That's right. Excellent. Okay, so Stuart is pointing out some of the, some of the differences. But in chapter, in chapter 24, David has a layup opportunity to kill Saul. Saul is chasing him with 3,000 men. And he finds him, and, and Saul ends up in a very vulnerable position. And David could kill him, but he doesn't. He comes up right to him, like right up on him. And he cuts off the corner of his garment, but doesn't kill him. And he, and he goes back. In chapter 26, we're going to see a very, very similar thing. Where David is being hunted like a dog. Saul has 3,000 troops coming after him. And, God could, and, and David could kill him easily. I mean, he could jam his own spear right into him and it would be over and he'd be safe. But he doesn't. Okay, before we get into the particular, okay, Terry? How big is this cave? How big, oh, okay, that, the first, oh yeah, so Saul was alone in the cave all by himself because he had to poop, okay? So the cave, we don't know how big the cave was, but he was alone in there. David was in the cave with, you know, his, his I don't even know how many people, right? So the 3,000 were someplace else, so it wasn't that, that big of a cave, okay? So now, why would the author of Samuel show us back-to-back these two pictures of David being hunted, being pursued by a crowd of 3,000 armed soldiers, have the opportunity to not only defend himself, but to kill his enemy, and both times pass on the opportunity. It's very redundant, but why? What is the author saying to give us these two things that are so conspicuously similar? What might be going on here? And then we'll jump into the particulars of it. Demonstrate God's protection. Okay, demonstrate God's protection and guidance. That's a good answer. That God is in, in a couple of uh, providential ways, right, that he is protecting David. Yes. What else? Yeah, real loud. I just want to say that when you give the story twice, you will know it or you will remember it. But when you do Okay, this is excellent. Okay, so repetition is always used as a teaching method to like kind of land this into your mind. I had, a, I had a professor once who said, put it simply... Illustrate it, repeat it endlessly. This is the key to teaching. Put it simply, illustrate it, repeat it endlessly. Okay? And so there is that sense of like, okay, this is, you're making this stick. But what is the thing that is sticking? What is the primary image, primary picture about David that is going to, by the way, have something very significant to say about the Messiah when he comes? Anne, you want to take a stab? I want to see that David was not taking things in his own. Yes. That's right. At a, right. at a ridiculous level. What, what we're seeing here is in David is that David is absolutely at a ridiculous level submitted to the Father. That whatever the Father puts in my path, I will just drink it all day, every day. He will never retaliate. He is not going to take, raise his hand against the Lord. It doesn't matter how much, how tempting it is, how dangerous the situation or how easy his retribution would be. David's never going to take the bait which suggests to us that when the Messiah comes, he is going to be unimaginably long-suffering. He is going to be not only infinitely worthy of receiving good, but infinitely patient and suffering evil. That when he is spat upon and mocked and ridiculed, he's not even going to wipe it off. He's just going to take it. That when he could rain down, call down from heaven a legion of angels to slaughter the Roman army, He's going to stay his hand. The day, this pattern that we're going to see with a fair bit of redundancy is to impress upon us that, man, the godly one, the anointed one, David to a point, but Jesus limitlessly will drink suffering, take pain, and never retaliate. 
Okay, this is what Peter said. Flip, flip to First Peter, and then we will finally begin our study in Samuel. First Peter, chapter 2. Listen to this. Let's pick it up in verse 19. First Samuel, chapter 2, verse 19. For it is commendable. Did I say it wrong? First Peter, chapter 2. Yep, you're good. First Peter 2, start at verse 19. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. We hate that. We hate that. You, if you rob me of my rights, we're going to go to war. Right? We just really hate that. We've noticed this the last couple of years in our culture. We're really struggling what if you infringe upon my rights? It's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called. Why? Listen to the why. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, and here it is, and, and this is almost like exactly the way you're phrasing it here. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Okay, this preeminent grace of Jesus, this, I mean, he's supreme in every category, and the gap between himself and us is just ridiculously vast, but maybe in no way more than this. His patience to suffer evil, to be attacked, to be vilified, to be spat upon, crucified, and to just take it, to be silent like a sheep before her shears. That Whatever that is, that thing about him is so extraordinary, so rare, so beautiful. And upon that, everything good in your life hangs, right? That attribute of him is, I think, what the camera is drawing our eye to in the life of David. That to a lesser extent than Jesus, but candidly to a pretty greater extent than probably anyone in this room, David possessed that attribute. And so we're going to watch the same show twice we're going to see it all happen again. Make sense? So for, that, for all of that, for those of you that hate redundancy as much as I do, suck it up, okay? There's a reason we're here. Okay, Catherine. Um, <coughs> the scripture that says revenge is mine, say it Yep. Um, David lived that out because, because God goes on. I can never quote it right, but he goes on to say that if, you know, if we get out of the way, like David did, then God can keep her in close on. Yes. And, you know, he could bring the man to repentance. That's right. And that's how, yeah, and so David doesn't really Yeah, absolutely. David is fully into this idea of it's mine to avenge, I will repay. He surrenders it to the Lord. We see it over and over. Chapter 24 and 26 are very much like that. You even see it in 25. He almost fails at it, but then Abigail's like, come on, David, you know, don't blow it. And we saw that last week. So let's take a look at 1 Samuel 26, verse 1. And I will say, we're going to move through it relatively quickly because there's a double click toward the end of the chapter that we're going to take a little bit of an excursus into, uh, into one of David's psalms that unpacks something that he says that might be a little surprising. So if I rush you along, it's okay, because it's somewhere I want to go with this. So 1 Samuel 26, check a look. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah, 
and said, hey, is this not David hiding on the hill of Hekelah, which faces Jeshimon? Saul's got spies everywhere, right? We've seen this. They keep being people that report back to Saul. Hey, I saw David. Here's where he is, and here's where we go. So Saul, how many times do you think? I, I didn't count them up, but how many times does Saul promise, David, you're good. I'm bad. We're done here. I'll never chase you again. You're going to be king. Everything's great. I mean, I mean, at least three. I mean, I mean, it's like over and over and over again. He's like, you know what? I don't know what I was thinking. You're the best. So sorry. And now some guy shows up and says, hey, we saw David. He's like, get the troops. It's so absolutely infuriating. Okay, verse 2. So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search there for David. I mean, it's, it's laughable at this point, right? It's nuts. So Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakali facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the desert. And when David saw that Saul had followed him there, do you think he was surprised at this point? No. <laughs> he, he's really not. Like, I mean, David knows. Because the last time he's like, my son, you'll be king. Everything's great. David's like, yeah, adios. Right? He knows. Okay? So David sees that Saul had followed him there. He sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Okay. So 3,000 troops, the exact same number as in chapter 24. So it's a huge crowd. Tell me this. How do you guys assess David's practicality versus faith? We'll oftentimes put these things in opposite categories. You can either, you know, take a census to make sure you got enough people in your army, or you can just trust the Lord that he's going to provide regardless of the numbers. How do you guys evaluate David's uh, practicality versus trust? What do you see here? First of all, what is, he, what, is, what is his response when he hears about David? Suzanne? Um, he's sending out scouts, which is what a good commander Right? Like, not just... Yeah, Saul's here with 3,000 troops, but all right, well, how are they in camp? What kind of defensive capabilities have they set up? You know, like, how, how, how will I need to respond to this if it does have that? Absolutely. So, David, there's a high degree, and you see this over and over again, a high degree of strategy to David. There's a practicality to David. He, I would not, I, it, it seems to me, I would not characterize him as if he's being naive. He's not putting his head in the sand. He's following good military strategy. Setting up scouts is like 101, right? We've got to go gather intel. And so David's going to do these things, right? He's not just like in some weird like faith camp that doesn't accept responsibility. He's doing the stuff, right? Lily? Um, hopefully this makes sense. I, I think of it kind of as liturgy where you have form, but the form and the wisdom and the practicality of what you have learned from man um, is only there so that you can pay attention to the Holy Spirit is doing within that, so that you can practice faith within the tools that you've been given. Okay, I like the way you're... He doesn't put that above his faith. Yes, okay, so what Lily's doing here, I think it's, gr it's great. You're, you're trying to kind of... It's not that these two things exist in opposition to each other. It's not that faith and... What do you want to call the opposite side of that? Strategy or function or practicality or whatever you want to call it. These things are not in opposition. These things are working together. And we're going to see it over and over. We have, we've already seen it over and over through David's life. That Quigg's fond of saying in liturgy, there's form and freedom, right? There's this basic set. He, David is absolutely committed to trusting the Lord. And I'm not going to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. That's his like refrain. But there's no problem sending out scouts to gather information to know what we're dealing with. Okay, Zach and then Tommy. I mean, you could plant corn and pray that the process of growth will happen. But practically, you have to still 
Amen. That's exactly right. That's a perfect illustration, Zach, right? You plant the seed. We're going to trust that the Lord is going to cause the growth. You know, what the heck's in a seed? How does that even work? I don't know, but we're going to water it, and we're going to see what happens. I'll say, and there's things in our lives where we're just, we just be, we're just obedient. We just do what we're, gonna, what we're supposed to do, but we don't know how it works. I, I've been, I think, pretty candid with you guys that I have a son who doesn't know Jesus, and it just drives me completely out of my mind. And um, I've made a decision that I'm going to fast for Ben every week until I'm dead. And fasting is the most ludicrous, nonsensical, I have no idea, why does that matter? Like, I just think it's completely, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. And so what about that, right? I do not need to understand how the thing works. To say, Lord, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to ask you, and if this pleases you, or if this does something in the universe that makes no sense to me, fine. My understanding is, my obedience is not contingent upon my understanding, Right? And so we, these things can coexist. Well, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do the thing that seems like I'm supposed to do. But at the end of the day, it's going to be a work of God. Right? And David's living in that space. We water, we water the seed. And I don't know how it works either. Right? Okay. Tommy? Um, I wondered, actually, if he had sent the, um, the spies out to keep his hand from sin. Because um, he sees that there's, there's a, the soldiers that have come out. And he sent the spies specifically. To, um, he said he sent spies to learn that Saul had me. Not that an army had come, or not that a group of men had come, but that the Lord's anointing was actually with them. And so, like, it's just starting, is he making a decision here? Should I just go ahead and attack them? Hmm. Or in doing so, am I not encouraged? Oh. So you think you wanted to make sure that Saul was there so that he wouldn't do it. Otherwise, he'd attack an army. And it's true that David doesn't have, David's not a pacifist by any means. He could attack the army, but he's not going to attack Saul. That, that could be, I had, not, I had not considered that or noticed that, Tommy, but that, that might be true, that he is... As he's being very intentional to be honorable himself. So that's a, that's a good insight. So here's what happens. They send out the troops, or send out the scouts, rather. They come back, and in verse 5, it says David, well, he gets the intel. And then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. And he saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had laid down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. Okay. Then David asks, Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, the son of Zerur, some dude, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? And Abishai says, I'll go with you. And so David and Abishai go down. Now, Abishai is his nephew, we know. Um, and off they go um, down to this thing. And it says that David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. And Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Now, without looking at the next verse, can you predict for me what Abishai thinks this clearly means? Yeah. What does it mean? Let's kill him, right? Everybody in the whole world is like, every time Saul, he's like, the Lord has delivered him into your hands. Pick up, the, he's even provided the spear. You don't even have to get your own sword dirty, you know, just move it three feet and jam it into him. It's obvious. It's obvious to everybody. We've talked about this. Like sometimes the circumstances are so easy, so obvious to interpret, but you might be wrong. And at this moment, yeah, I would think that if I were David, I'd be like, yeah, I think you're right this time. God is rewarding me for not doing it last time so that I could do it this time. But instead, in verse 9, David said to Abishai, don't... Oh, of course, and Abishai, what's, what's Abishai's... Um, uh, he's kind of got a little bit of a twist to it. What is Abishai's strategy? I'll do it. It's beautiful. Saul's dead and you don't get your hands dirty, right? But David can see through that. You ever do that? You feel like, you know, maybe if we just have one step of separation, you disobey and I won't have to. Yeah. Right? Man, 
And so Abishai says, you know, I won't, it won't take me twice. I'll jam it through him. And David says in verse 9, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Think about that. It's still the Lord's anointed. And it's not just that David can't kill him. Nobody can kill him. And so he's not willing to ask Abishai to incur guilt on his behalf. He says, no, 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 it's fine. Let, let it be. As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die like in 30 years of cancer, or he'll go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Okay? And then he tells him to do something else. What is David's alternative strategy? Okay, take, the pr- take proof. So on the one hand, just take something, anything that's nearby so we can prove to him that we were here and didn't kill him. But I think there's actually another layer of meaning here. So what's the specific proof? Spear in the water. Okay, let's just think about this. Let's just assume for a second that it's meaningful. He could have taken anything, but he takes the spear in the water jug. What, just kind of just imagine about this. What might these things represent that he is taking from him? Power. Power, very good, okay? So there's this, he's not going to kill him, but when he takes his spear, he's taking, this is the king's weapon. This is like, you know, this is like your sword. This is the scepter of the king in battle, and he's taking it away. This is more of this meaning. We've seen over and over again. He's going to take the garment. You're not really fit to, to walk. His, the clothing of the king has been taken from him. Now he's taking his spirit. These are all emblems, sim, symbols of his kingship, of his power, of his reign. And David's not going to take, not going to kill him, but he's like, you know what? Your kingship's not going to last. And then what's, what's the water jug? What do you, what, Dan? Water is spirit. Yeah. And so it's just David kind of communicating the spirit of god isn't with you anymore Saul. you're doing the wrong thing okay so when, when dan says so confidently water is spirit have you ever noticed this in the bible how just the sheer volume of times that the spirit of god is associated with water right can you think can you give us can you prove it real quick okay the first time we it, we see the spirits hovering over the water this is true yeah. no i have a deer in the headlights but yeah. okay but, but it's true, right? It's John 4, right? When John meets the woman at the well, and uh, he says, ask of me and I'll give you living water. It's John 7. Jesus says, you guys know John 7 on the last and greatest day of the feast? We just did this at feast. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up in a loud voice and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of him will flow streams of living water, which John then says, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who later believed in him would receive. The river in Revelation 22 that flows from the throne of the throne of the Lamb and the throne of the Father, that river of water is the Holy Spirit. Psalm 36, the river of God's delight is the Spirit. So Dan is right. Yes, Zach. How could, how could David be trying to symbolize taking away the Spirit of God from Saul while at the same time acknowledging that he is the Lord's anointed? Okay, this is a great question. So he is, an, this is such an insightful question, Zach. So Saul has been anointed for the office of, of king. He really has. But in fact, already at this moment, uh, okay. So Zach, when today, since Jesus came, when anybody becomes a follower of Christ, at that moment, at the, at the, at the moment of rebirth, regeneration, right, the Spirit of God moves in and lives in us and never, ever, ever leaves. It's a permanent condition that if, if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God is in you. But that is new. That is new as of the death of Christ. Okay, that's in this, under this new covenant, this new era. That is a permanent fixture for Christians, that the Spirit of God lives in us. In the era that David lived, it was not the case. The, the Spirit was given more selectively and more limitedly 
Um, the new covenant, one of the, it's not just that we live after the cross, but it's we live after the giving of the Spirit, which is an absolute game changer. Saul had been given in a peculiar way the Spirit of God, and Saul had lost the Spirit of God, um, that God had withdrawn himself from him even prior to this. So it's not so much that David is predicting that he will lose the Spirit, as much as he's affirming that he has lost the Spirit, that he's followed into, gone to a path of disobedience as God has withdrawn from him. But he's still king, and so hands off. Okay? All right, Stuart. Samuel anointed David king. Well, I mean, Samuel anointed him king. Yeah. Well, yes. So Samuel, yes, Samuel has anointed him, but he has not. It's kind of like he's been elected, but not, um, what do we call it around here? Inaugurated? Is that the word? Um, so David is in that, for, what do we say? It's like 13 years. David is in this long, long, anointed, but not yet inaugurated season. And Saul is in the opposite of, of essentially, he's, he still holds the office, but he's lost the spirit of God. And I do think that, I think you're exactly right, Dan. Okay, we got to keep moving. Okay, you, one more, and then we'll keep going. Because God put a deep sleep on everybody, because I've been wondering, you know, how they go walking in there and nobody noticed them, but, I, but they were put into a deep That's right. Was David being tested at all? You know, like, here is a golden, perfect opportunity. I put everybody to sleep. I got a spear right by his head. Uh, Oh, I think so, for sure. So David is, so, well, there's a couple things. First, the Spirit of God is putting Saul to sleep. I mean, it's a a pretty bold move to wander into this, you know, surrounded by 3,000 armies and and grab the thing. But they were, uh, you know, the anesthesiologist had taken him out already, right? So he's already down, right? So is Conrad in here? Chris Conrad, I don't know if he's in here, but like, like he's already been he's already been knocked down, and so David is functioning probably with a lot more safety than it seems. It must, he, I would imagine David is like tiptoeing into this, not perhaps being r- really cognizant that he could probably roll in banging cymbals, and God has just has put Saul to sleep. You know, they're having a conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. So maybe he knew. Maybe he understood. That, uh, that, that uh, he's functioning in that kind of safety. Who knows? Okay, so let's keep going because I still have something I want to show you. Um, so uh, D- David gets the jug, the water, gets the spear, and he goes back across the valley, and then he yells out. Look at verse, say, 13. David crossed to the other side, stood at the top of the hill, calls out to the army, Hey, Abner, who was like the, you know, the commander of the army. Hey, what's up, Abner? And Abner's like, Who are you who calls to the king? And David says, You're a man, aren't you? Who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard the Lord, your Lord the King? Someone came to destroy your Lord the King, and what you have done is not good. For surely as the Lord lives, you and your men deserve to die, because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Isn't that incredible? He's like taunting him for not, like, I'm protecting Saul. You are the commander of his army, and you're not protecting him. I'm the one he's hunting, and I am. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and the water jug that were near his head? What is he insulting about Abner? What is he calling into question about Abner? Loyalty to the king. Like, are you really interested in this guy's survival or not? What are you doing? What else? Totally incompetent. Like, what is your deal? Yeah. Anything else? Manhood. Yeah, maybe that's the most painful of them all, right? He wants the position. Yeah, he's absolutely impugning his motives, manhood, all these things. And then Saul hears David's voice, and Saul, just being Saul, what is what is what's he gonna say? 
Oh, my son, David. It's been so long. I love you. I miss you, my son. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. Saul recognizes David's voice, and he says, Is that your voice, David, my son? And David's like, Yeah, it is, my lord, the king. And then we have the same conversation we've been having forever. Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? And what wrong am I guilty of? Now, let my lord, the king, listen to his servant's words. And he's going to give him a couple options. Okay, notice the two. He's going to say there's... There might be one of two different things could be going on here, okay? Number one, maybe the Lord has incited you against me. That's interesting. We'll talk about that. And if so, may he then accept an offering. If, however, men have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have now driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. Now don't let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea. As one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Okay, David is creating plausibility for two different instigators. Who's the first instigator? Yahweh. He's like, all right, listen. Maybe God has led you against me. And if so, what should we do about that? (coughs) Make a sacrifice. Maybe maybe God is mad at me. Maybe, Maybe David's like, maybe I need to own this. Maybe you're chasing me because I've done something wrong. And if so, God is merciful. Perhaps he would accept a substitute in my place. That P.S. is the gospel. Sin equals death, sin equals death, sin equals death. But it doesn't need to be your death. And David says, perhaps the Lord will be pleased to accept a sacrifice. And then you could back up off me. What's the other alternative? Somebody, men have incited, you know, you against me. What's the third and most obvious option that he doesn't mention? It's you, Saul. Maybe this was your idea, right? He's like, you know, maybe it's the Lord, if so. Like, let's, we'll work through that through. Maybe it's other evil men. He doesn't mention, hey, you know, actually, maybe the common ingredient in all of this is you, Saul. He doesn't do that. He's incredibly gracious. And he tells Saul, listen, you know, whatever it takes, how about if we bring this thing to a close in a way that's going to honor the Lord and you'll stop listening to foolish voices. P.S., it might be your own. And David, of course, tolerates one more time David my son the fickleness of Saul and then he says this and this is really what I want to unpack with you look at what he says in verse 23 okay hear this from David and we're gonna we're gonna wrestle with this David says this the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness the Lord rewards every man For his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Okay? So if you are a good Protestant evangelical, what is the rallying cry of the Reformation? What are the the onlys of the Reformation? Okay, by faith alone. What is it? Scripture alone. Faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, okay? Nowhere in that thing is my righteousness alone, right? Good Protestants, good evangelicals, we don't, know, we don't, we don't like to say, well, my right, God rewards me according to my righteousness. He doesn't record me, reward me according to my righteousness. He records me, rewards me according to the righteousness of Christ, imputed to me, received as a gift by faith. Amen? You down with this? Okay, so what do we do when David says, Yahweh will reward me for my righteousness. What do you, do you have a cubbyhole in your brain 
to fit that? Is it true? And if it is true, then what's all this grace alone stuff? How do we, how do we understand this? Okay, Lily? It's the same as with Abraham. His faith was counted him as righteousness. David walks in faith. He's not claiming he's righteous by himself. It's only what he has received from the Lord. And, I mean, you have another verse, like, the prayer of a righteous person is power as it is working. And it's only because God's power is more fully working in that person as to their Okay, so when we invoke Abraham, the father of faith, we see that, um, and it's interesting because we can see how Paul uses Abraham in Romans, how James kind of quotes Abraham, the same event, and they take kind of different angles on this, right? That Abraham is the father of those who believe. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? We are saved full on by grace through faith alone. Not just by faith, but by faith alone. The only reason that we will stand before the Father, cleansed in his eyes, raised the resurrection to live forever in a kingdom of endless joy is because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, received as a gift through faith. I'm super, super, super hardcore by grace alone, through faith alone. Okay? Yes and amen. However, Calvin said, it is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Right? And our faith will matter. It'll play out. It'll work out in our lives. Okay? Now, what I want you guys to do is turn in your Bibles to Psalm 25. I want you to see something. And then we're going to pass out. In fact, we'll do it. Let's do it right now. You guys can pass out these notes here if you don't mind. So Psalm 25. I want you guys to think about the concept of grace. Okay? This is just a category. I just want to kind of invent a category in your brain. I think God is always gracious to us. Constantly just showers us with grace. We live in a sea of grace. And sometimes, I'm going to give you a couple of terms. I'm going to to try to use my words very carefully, okay? Sometimes the grace of God is both unmerited, right? It's unmerited. What does that word mean, unmerited? Didn't earn it, don't deserve it. It is unmerited and it is unconditional. Unmerited and unconditional. I believe God's choosing you in eternity past to be saved. His choice. He looked down the quarter of time and saw that Mark Skullrude would never, ever, under any circumstances, bend the knee. And he said, you know what? I'm going to fix that thing in him so that he can. And then he did. He picked you. He chose you. Not because you're smarter or funnier or prettier, right? But because he determined that he would love you. That was unmerited. He didn't deserve it. And it was unconditional. There was nothing about you that made him choose you. He loves you because he loves you. Sometimes God's grace is both unmerited and unconditional. So far, so good? But sometimes God's grace is unmerited and conditional. It's unmerited. You don't deserve it. But there is nevertheless a condition to receive it. All right? And that category of conditional, undeserved, conditional, unmerited is the, is the category that I want to make sure exists in your mind in case it does not. And Psalm 25 is one of a gajillion places we can look at that. I chose this, frankly, because Piper does. And Piper has taught me some stuff about this. Unmerited, right? You don't deserve it. But it is absolutely conditional. So look at Psalm 25. You can look at it in your own Bible. You can go through here. What I've done here is I've marked out in bold... All the places where God's grace is 
Un, which one do you want to do first? We'll say that is unmerited, right? We don't deserve the instruction that he gives to sinners because we're sinners. We don't deserve his steadfast love and his faithfulness. We don't deserve to have our guilt pardoned. The whole nature of a pardon is that it's undeserved. What you deserve is to be punished. We don't deserve that he would turn to us and be gracious to us. The very nature of grace is that we don't deserve it. We don't deserve, in verse 17, that he would bring us out of our distress. That is a gift. We don't deserve, in verse 18, that he would forgive our sins. We don't deserve his deliverance or rescue from shame. We don't deserve to be preserved. His grace is, through all of these things, unmerited. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. It's a gift. So far, so good? But now look at all the bold stuff. He leads the humble in what is right. That's a condition. If you are humble, if, ifs are conditions, if you're humble, then you will get this good thing. He teaches the humble his way. That steadfast love and faithfulness, for whom is that reserved? According to verse 10. It's those that keep his covenant and his testimonies. Verse 12, what's the condition? To fear him. Verse 21, what are the conditions? Integrity and uprightness, waiting on him. I missed one. Verse 20, what's the condition? Going to him for refuge, okay? So Psalm 25, again, is one of many, many places we can see that God's grace is unmerited. You don't deserve these things. He's gracious. He pardons. He forgives and he loves. But there are some times, not all times, but there are some times that his grace is nevertheless conditional upon something that we do. That when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. There's a manner, there's something that we can do. Now, there could exist in your brain a confusion that how could anything be conditioned and yet deserved? And so here's my, the illustration I give you at the top of this. If I offer to give you my Miata in exchange for a nickel, okay, would you deserve, yeah, no deal. This is a very, this is, a, this is hypothetical, okay? Right? Is five cents an appropriate payment for that sweet car? It is not. You would not deserve it. Of course, neither did I in the first place. But nevertheless, you don't deserve it. But I could still put a condition upon it which you could meet. You could give me the nickel. And per the terms of the agreement, I would then give you the car. Right? So I'm, I'm, you're meeting a condition. But having met a nickel's worth of condition, you get something far more glorious in, in exchange. Does that make sense? This is how it is with our Lord. That there, Sometimes his grace, his saving grace, his choosing you from eternity past to enter into his love and to have your eyes open to see the depth of your need, his beauty to meet the need. That was unconditional, unmerited. He loves you because he loves you. You contribute nothing to that. But there are also times where he says, if you will, then I will. And in those instances, there is a condition, but it was still... We get far more than we deserve because he overpays us for the slightest provocation. Does that make sense? I think this is what David means when he says, surely you reward. He's not just, you're not getting paid. 
You're getting rewarded. You're getting an ample, an over, an abundance for a very small offering on our behalf. So we live in a sea. Sometimes grace is unconditional and unmerited. Sometimes it is conditional, but nevertheless still unmerited. Okay, let's go from this. Jump onto it. I am seriously unfunded. Okay, tell me why. Because of the not by works, but by faith alone. And I mean, I understand that all through the Old Testament, that if you will bow your knee, if you will keep my covenant, if yes. you will obey the laws, then I will be your God and you will be my people. So but I, I just feel like after the death of Christ, there is, there is no condition on you other than accepting that. So is that the Okay, good. This is good. This is, I was hoping that somebody would be unhappy, so thank you for stepping up. Okay, so this is good. Okay, so let me ask you this. Is salvation unmerited and unconditional, or is it unmerited and conditional? So loud. Say loud. How do you answer that? Like it's unconditional based on Christ. Yes. Okay, very good. Now. Okay, good, 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 good. So your answer is, your answer is that salvation is both unmerited and unconditional. That's your claim. Okay, do you think that I'm disagreeing with that? Okay, I am not. Okay, so, so as abundantly clear as I can. So when I'm, when I'm picking on skull root over here, like the function of our salvation is, let me, as crystal clearly, salvation is unmerited and unconditional. Salvation is unmerited and unconditional. The fact that we are drawn to Christ, that our sins are forgiven, we're seated in him, we are given the spirit, unmerited and unconditional. Full stop. Have you heard that? Okay. And in addition to that, there is more to my life than merely having my sins forgiven, right? And it's a little bit strange to talk about that as a mere thing because it is the foundation of all things. But I don't only want to be forgiven and hidden in Christ. I also want a happy marriage. I also want my job to go well. I also want to live at peace with my neighbors. I also want, I don't know, a thousand, ten, I mean, I'm an, I'm an endless bucket of desire, okay? So we could just, this day could go on forever and ever and ever, right? And some of those things that the Lord would graciously choose to give me are conditional on some act of obedience, something he wants me to do. How does that do? That's fine. You can live in that world. Okay. All right. Okay. So some of his grace is unconditional and unmerited. It is a gift given as is his, his, the righteousness of Christ, given as a gift, received by faith, meets that standard. Other things are both merited and conditional, which is to say the way that we live matters. And actually, the things that we do, the choices we make, can open up possibilities that we would not otherwise have if we were living in disobedience to him. Okay, now there's 500 hands. I don't even know who to start with. So we'll start with Jennifer. We'll, come, we'll bounce around. Jennifer. But isn't accepting the gift of Christ's salvation a condition? Okay. All right, so the question is, is accepting the gift of, of, of salvation by Christ a condition? And I would say that is going to turn us into a great big study on election, okay? And... The reason, so, and so I'm trying to be very careful with my words, but we get unpack it. The reason that we're picking on, I'm picking on Mark is elect, right? Because there's reason to believe that you're actually hidden in Christ, okay? Uh, I mean, I'm not certain of it, but it seems that way to me, Mark, okay? So that election in eternity past, unmerited, unconditional, yes. But what did Mark do? 
He received it. What, and what in particular, what is the act that, that he had to believe? He had to believe. And did he do you? Have you abandoned all hope in your self-righteousness? Turned from your unrighteousness to trust that Jesus can do all that you need? Not all of it. <laughs> I think that was the false answer, okay? I think, I think you have, okay? And if not, we'll go to Susie, where I feel better about Susie, okay? That act of believing, of saying, I trust you, I believe you, that is a condition and I think that's what you're saying, is belief is a, it's like, if you believe, then you get this. But that is a condition. Even that is a gift. Faith is a gift, right? Even faith is a gift. Even repentance is a gift, right? So sometimes he gives us conditions, and then he enables us to meet the condition, right? Second Timothy 2 says that God grants repentance. What is that? How humiliating is that, right? That even that is a gift. So those, those things are, yes, he's done that, okay? So that's my answer to you. Let's go over to Joel. So in, in your example of like the exchange of the Miata for a nickel and in, in the context of Psalm 25, like it doesn't take very long, if I'm honest with myself, to know that I don't even have a nickel's worth of humility, ability to yeah. desire to fear the Lord, to take, even know that I need to take refuge in him and to have integrity or righteousness without him working. Yes, yes. things you said we could get, you know, great marriage, great kids, job goes well, whether that happens or not, it will be okay if I'm truly allowing him to work these things in my life. Yes. It'll be awful. I'll yes. still survive because I have the great Yes. Okay, I like this. Okay. So Joel is saying he's not even sure he's got a nickel's worth of humility. And so if all that it takes, if I can get a Miata for a nickel, like, I may not be able to afford that, right? Now, here's, here's what Paul says. I think this comes, go to 1 Corinthians 15. Because I think Paul kind of speaks to the way that grace works in our lives, okay? Um, 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll just look at verses uh, 9 and 10. So listen to this, and this, I think, matches the spirit of what you're saying, Joel. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of all the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, right? He doesn't deserve, it's unmerited. He doesn't deserve this. Who am I? To be like the one person in all of human history who is, you know, more than anybody else has spread the gospel throughout the world. What an unspeakable honor. And he's like, who am I? I persecuted the church of God. He could have flung me from the universe and I would have no standing to complain. But instead he's taken me from my, this lowly place and invited me to this position of infinite, infinite influence. For all of eternity, Paul will have the pleasure to see surrounding the world those that he loved and called in. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like, the, the reward that is Paul's, right? I don't deserve any of it. It's all unmerited. But then he says this, nevertheless, I didn't deserve it, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He did call me. He did choose me. He did give me gifts of knowledge, understanding. He gave me some capacity to get, keep getting hit in the head with rocks and then keep doing it. Like, it was a grace. But then look at this line, and this is where I think your nickel comes in, Joel. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without an effect. What that means is that God, having been gracious, I actually became, I really do love him. Like, actually. Like, he really has changed me. I really am willing to suffer. I am, really am willing to be patient. But then as soon as he says, as soon as he's like, his grace was not without effect, I worked harder than all of them. 
and he did. That's condition. He did the work that produced the fruit. As soon as he says it, he's like, ah, but hang on. Let's not overstate this. For not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Right? And this is how it works. God is gracious to us. In that grace, it produces an effect. We meet the condition. We do the thing. But let's not get arrogant here because even that is a gift. And we live in a sea of grace. But we live in a sea of grace. Nevertheless, where our actual behavior, our real things that we do, makes a difference. It actually matters. Okay, and we're so long in time, so I don't even know where to go. So, Ellen, uh, uh, Ellen? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there is that out of the love that we have, the, the salvation that we receive, and the faith and our belief, we, out of that love that the Spirit works in us, we keep his commandments. There are, there are some things that you have to do. There are, in the Christian life, genuine causes and effects. Actually, and you can be a real cause to a real effect. There are conditions which, when we meet them, by his grace, he produces a disproportionate effect. Okay? Now, I can't tell you how happy I am that so many of you are unhappy right now. Right? <laughs> Wrestle with this. Okay? Here's the Bereans. Here's what the Bereans do. They diligently studied the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. So go look me up. Study it. Be bothered by this. Go have the next week's worth of quiet times chasing down all the conditional language. Am I making this up? Or has God's word perhaps in some situations been oversimplified such that you don't really see, such that you haven't been maybe even taught, the reality that your life matters more than you think it does? Okay, Lily, and then we're done. Um. So as a contrast to Psalm 25, I was thinking of Psalm 107, where you have the fool and the person who is rebellious and these people who are pirates, essentially, but when they cry out to the Lord, in each section of Psalm 107, he answers in the same way and says, give thanks, Lord, for his steadfast love. But the mechanism, and I think this is kind of a dovetail of what Ellen was saying, is relationship with God himself. These people cried out to him, and he was still merciful and gracious, and he answered with his steadfast love. But with David, he Yes. Okay. And so we're going to end on that because it's a brilliant insight. The essence of the conditions is turn to me. Turn to me. Turn to me. Turn to me. If you will come to me, then I will give you everything. Right? That's the chief condition of the Christian life is that we would seek him, that we would seek his face. As we do that, that's what unlocks all the blessings. Okay. We've got to stop there. If you're completely harassed, email me. See you. <laughs>